Today's reading is from Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the, the, the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Bit of a confession to make. Um, so last week, uh, our own Bradley Hoffbauer gave the message, and um, at the end of it came a call to action, a call to literally signing up for a marathon. And so I am not going to be doing that. Uh, today, uh, but in the passage last week was the parable about people being invited to a wedding and not showing up, and then someone having being forced to kind of come in, wearing the wrong clothes, and then being tied and thrown outside. And I thought, I said, Bradley, since you're talking about getting people to sign up for the marathon, you don't have to use that passage. And I was like pretty sure he was not going to use that passage, uh, and so I prepared for it. And then he took it. So, um, so. <laughs> I was like, there's no way he's taking the person getting thrown outside. If you don't sign up for the marathon, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but there are times when we read the Bible and we are acutely aware that we are engaging in a cross-cultural encounter. That's always the case, of course, but, but there's times where, where we're especially aware of the distance between the world of Scripture and our own. Now, this parable for me is one of those times. And each culture has its own distinctive traditions, rituals, practices, especially around marriage. And so in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to kind of enter into his world. Now, I have never been to a wedding with torches, but I have been to a wedding that was completely foreign to me. One of Amy's good friends from high school and college and her now husband are Indian Americans. And so their, their ceremony was a full-on Indian wedding, adapted slightly for American circumstances. And had I been left to my own devices, I would have had no idea what was happening during the ceremony other than they're getting married. But each guest was given this program that described in detail what, what each motion, what each ritual, what each aspect of the ceremony meant so that people who were unfamiliar with what was happening could understand that, that for outsiders, and there were many of us at that wedding, the unfamiliar could become, at least for that hour, somewhat familiar. And when you're participating in or, or you're witnessing an unfamiliar ritual, you really think about what's going on and, and you try to understand it. And so I think it's helpful for us 
Just as at this wedding we were at, they, they tried to make the unfamiliar f- familiar. Sometimes it helps to make the familiar unfamiliar. And if we examine our own wedding practices, we, we can look at them as an outsider would and say, what does this mean? What is going on here? You know, think of our own wedding practices. Why do we do engagements the way that we do? You know, someone getting down on a, a knee with a ring and, and a precious stone in the middle, usually a diamond. Why do we do that? Why do we pick to have the ceremonies where we have them in a church or a courthouse or now uh, outside oftentimes or some other venue? Why does everyone get all dressed up? Why do people pay thousands of dollars to document the event with photos and video? Why do brides wear white and veils? Why do we have bridesmaids and groomsmen standing up front at all? Why bouquets? Why unity candles? Why does the couple take vows? Why do they process in separately and leave together? And why do they invite all of these people to witness them making these promises? Why do they throw a party afterwards? Why do people give toasts and dance? Why do bouquets get thrown? Garters get removed? Why do gifts get purchased? Why do people pay all of that money, tens of thousands of dollars in, in many cases, for just one day? And so when we stop and we think about it, the way we do weddings is strange. And, and they're really one of the only cultural events where people still feel the pull of tradition. And, and where people are more or less interested in, in being an individual, and, and they comfortably or uncomfortably conform to many of our pre-written, pre-packaged cultural scripts. See, weddings are powerful like that because they are these events that are just charged with meaning. Unlike probably anything else, cultural psychological, socioeconomic, theological meaning is just infused in them. And that makes them the perfect kind of event for Jesus to use as an illustration of the kingdom of heaven. See, weddings are such an effective parable because people understood the cultural scripts and the roles that various people were supposed to play. And so it would stand out when someone wasn't doing what they were supposed to do. And that's where these ten virgins, or what other translations call ten bridesmaids, or ten young women come in. Now, marriage practices in Jesus' time were very different than our own. It was this two-step process. We know that from reading the Gospels. First came betrothal, when a man and woman were pledged to be married to one another. Joseph and Mary at the beginning of Matthew and Luke and so if we're to try to analogize that to our own practices, it was akin to sort of the engagement and saying vows happening at the same time. And so when you were betrothed, you were going to marry that person. And then sometime later, could be many months, could be years even, there would come the wedding itself. And when the wedding came, the bride would leave her family home and officially become a part of the groom's family, and the marriage would be consummated. And, and to mark this occasion... There would be this great feast, this celebration would be held at the groom's home. And the wedding day would begin with dancing and, and celebrating, and then the, the bride and her bridesmaids would go back to her family home while the feast was being prepared at the groom's family home. And then that night, the, the groom and his groomsmen would process to the home of the bride, 
and a messenger would go ahead announcing his imminent arrival, at which point the bridesmaid would go out with torches to meet the groom's party, escort them to the bride, and then escort the couple and everyone else back to the feast so the feast could begin. You know, whereas for us, the, the ceremony and, and the celebration, the reception, the feast, the party happen on the same day in, in first century Palestine, there were two distinct separate events. And so this gap between betrothal and reception or celebration makes ancient weddings an especially apt illustration for Jesus of the kingdom of God for his followers. Because for disciples then and now, our situation is akin to that of the bridesmaids. We're waiting for someone to arrive. We're between Christ's first and second advent. We're in the time between. God entered history in in the person of Jesus Christ in the first century. He was born, lived, died, rose again, ascended to rule at God's right hand, and he promised to return. So the question then is, when exactly? And how should we live in the time between? What is it that we're supposed to do? I'll never forget this one wedding we went to years ago where there was about a two-hour gap between the end of the wedding ceremony and and the beginning of the reception. And the hotel was like 10 minutes away. And so during that time, you know, the couple hadn't seen each other, and so the wedding party, they were taking photos during that two-hour period. But there was nothing happening at the hotel for the reception. And so Amy and my sister and I were at this wedding, and we said, what are we supposed to do for these next two hours? We're hungry. We're not going to get fed for several hours. And so we did what came naturally. We went to Target and then TGI Fridays. <laughs> it was a, two hours was a long time. Uh, but, you know, uh, try two millennia waiting for Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus' admonition, the, the punchline of, of the parable, and it, it's true then and now, it's, just, it's always be ready. And being ready means not thinking, you know, two wrong things. Okay, well, he's taking a really long time, so he's never coming back. And and so that's an excuse to be lax in our discipleship or or wicked in our conduct. If we were to read uh, the verses immediately before our, our chapter, the end of Matthew 24, Jesus talks about this wicked servant who used the delay of the return of his master to get drunk and start abusing his fellow servants. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't think I'm never coming back. But he also says, well, don't be like those who think that my return is so imminent that that you're not planning prudentially for a delay. Like the five foolish bridesmaids who didn't bring any extra oil for their torches. And so ultimately, this parable confronts us with this really, really important question. What's the difference between the five wise and the five foolish bridesmaids. Both groups were invited to the wedding. Both groups had had torches at the ready. And tellingly, both of them fell asleep. It was midnight. They were drowsy. They had been partying all day. And it took the groom a long time to get there. So who can blame them? When Jesus talks about being ready, he's not talking about, you know, being hyper-vigilant. 
In fact, he warns against being end times obsessives. The difference is that the five wise bridesmaids were prepared to answer the call when it came. And the five foolish ones were not. So the question then that this parable asks of us as followers of Jesus Christ is this. Will we be or or are we ready to answer the call? See, the thing about this passage is that Jesus, of course, is speaking here about what we would call the second coming. But it's more than that. The end, when we're walking with Jesus, is proleptic. Now, what does the word proleptic mean? It means this, something that anticipates a future event. That's what proleptic means, something that anticipates a future event. And so we talk about Jesus' resurrection at Easter as proleptic, in that his resurrection at Easter anticipates the future resurrection of the dead. And the return of Jesus to each and every one of us, and and his call to, to wake up, to be ready, anticipates in the here and now, the second coming. So it's not just about, you know, being ready then. It's about being ready now. It's not just about, you know, when the roll is called up yonder. Interestingly enough, one time I was uh, doing a membership class. This was in uh, California. And we asked people, why are you at church? What are you doing here? And this woman was at the class. She's like, I'm getting a little older. I want to be ready when the roll is called up yonder. I was like, that is, I thank you for being so honest. (laughs) She's like, I'm trying to get right with the Lord. But she didn't wait till it was too late. And so it's about when God's call to wake up and be ready comes to us right now. So are we going to be ready when that call comes? That's a a very important question to ask ourselves as individuals, but but it's also one that, that we face as a worshiping community. I mean, there was a group of five wise and five foolish. So when God calls us, when God says, wake up, Are we going to be prepared to answer? And as a community, this, you know, are we ready question, it's at the forefront of what we're thinking about. And as I was thinking about this passage, I I thought about where God might be calling us to wake up and be ready. And one of the great assets that we have is this place. This is amazing. This is a gift. But one of the great challenges that we face, and really that churches all over this country are facing, is this. How can we use buildings that were designed for 20th century ministry needs for God's kingdom purposes in the 21st? Because ultimately, this belongs to God and is to be used for God's purposes in ways that bear witness to God's kingdom right here in our midst. And so are we furthering God's mission, God's kingdom, by having our basement sit mostly empty seven days a week? Is that why God has blessed us with this facility? I don't think so. And so the question for us is, is are we going to be ready to answer the call when it comes? You know, decently and in order, of course. You know, don't worry about that, Jeff. But... uh, 
but answer the call when we find the right partners to dream with us about how we can wake up to a new, higher, and better use for our facility to bless those folks who need it most in our community. And that's what we're dreaming about right now with, with Ace in the City. This is very exciting. I, I touched on this briefly before. But are we ready during this time between to wake up to God's dreams for our local community, to create space for folks like single mothers who are recovering from addiction, people who, who need help finding a job or getting trained for a job, folks who don't have enough food or, or kids who need a health checkup, that kind of stuff. Are, are we going to be ready to answer that call? When God says, wake up. Or we will be underprepared and so miss the opportunity and get shut out of some of the great things that God is doing. And the next couple months, you know, we'll have a chance to hear about that dream for the church basement. And we're asking ourselves, if, are we ready for this? And if not this, we'll be ready when whatever opportunity God brings that's right comes our way. Are we ready to wake up and answer the call? And of course, it's not just a collective question. It comes to us individually as well. Are you ready to wake up and answer the call of the Lord when he comes into your life? When that call comes, will you be ready? Will you be willing? Will you be able? But before we can answer that, maybe there's a deeper question. How can one be ready? What, what does it mean to have extra oil at the ready? What does that symbolize? And for the best answer, I think we can look all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, which has echoes of our passage today. So our parable here ends with the groom saying to the foolish bridesmaids, I do not know you. And this sounds similar to some words that Jesus uses almost at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about letting our light shine. And he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. See your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that extra oil comes from doing good deeds that, that point people, not to ourselves, but to God. Dale Bruner, in his masterful commentary on Matthew, says that this parable teaches us that to enter the kingdom, you must both accept the invitation and prepare for it. And we prepare for it by doing God-glorifying good works. Now, if you've got any Protestant bones in your body, this might make you squirm. We are justified by faith, not works. True. But listen to uh, what Martin Luther, you know, Mr. Protestant himself. If anyone's a Protestant, it's Martin Luther, right? Uh, 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 this is what he writes in his, in his preference to Romans, his commentary on Romans, on the relationship between faith and good works. He writes, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. 
It is impossible for it to not be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. Bruner says, the lamp oil that all ten of them had, the lamp oil of experiential Christianity without the reserve oil of disciplined Christianity, that is to say, an experience of Jesus without obedience to his teaching, betrays unbelief and will not find entrance into the end-time kingdom. And I think Bruner is getting at something so important here as he's comparing, you know, this lamp oil and reserve oil. And it's something which transcends so much of the divide in the American church today between, you know, quote-unquote conservative and quote-unquote liberal Christianity. You know, conservative Christianity, excellent when it comes to the lamp oil of Christian experience. Preaching a gospel that causes your heart to, 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 to catch flame, you know, give your life to Jesus Christ. Really good at getting commitments, you know, getting people saved. And I'm not against conversion experiences at all. I had one myself. It changed the trajectory of my life. But it's not enough to have lamp oil only. And then there's, you know, quote-unquote liberal Christianity that emphasizes the reserve oil, all about good works, social gospel, whatever you want to call it. And that's where much of mainline Christianity finds itself focusing on the reserve oil of good works and not the lamp oil of religious affections. But what good is reserve oil if you haven't got a torch to burn? But what if, what if, and I think you can see where I'm going here with this, we put those two things that belong together, together. Speaking of weddings, what does the officiant say? What God has joined together. Let no one separate. And so maybe that's what it means to be ready for the Lord's return. Ready to wake up and answer the call. We wed Christian experience with Christian obedience. Because the worst thing that can happen, according to Jesus, is to not be prepared and get left out of the party. And I don't want to not address that part of the passage. As a preacher, I want to end on a high note, never with a warning. But that's not how Jesus preached. In fact, one of the striking things in Matthew, when you go through Jesus' big blocks of teaching, is that he's always ending with a warning. But it's so important to keep in mind who exactly Jesus is warning, who those are directed to insiders, religious professionals, people who believe that they are counted amongst the righteous. That's who Jesus's warnings are especially for. Bruner says, and he is so right, if we teach only Jesus's mercies, but not his judgments, we disfigure the gospel. And I would add that, that we tend to teach Jesus's mercies towards people we like and his judgments towards people we don't. But we must resist that tendency and do the reverse. And we ought to heed Jesus' warnings as if they're directed towards us. That not being ready comes with a cost. We don't get to enter the party. And that's the last thing that we would ever want to miss out on. 
And this parable is a stern reminder that there are things that can't be borrowed from others. The, the, the foolish virgins could not borrow the lamp oil from the wise. We can't borrow anyone else's faith. We can't borrow anyone else's preparedness. We can't borrow anyone else's prayer life or Bible study or, or, or good works or worship or walk with the Lord. We've got to own that ourselves. And this parable is also a stern reminder that there are certain things that can't be left to the last minute. And there's a, there's a point beyond which there's no return. But the good news is that we get to hear Jesus' words today. And we get to start to put them into practice. And where Jesus' words are, there's grace. And where there's grace, it truly is never too late. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.